You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. God has a calling on his life. Moses, knowing God has called him to be a a deliverer because his Hebrew brothers and sisters are slaves. And so he goes out and he sees one day an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And so he, he, he kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. Next day he goes out and he sees two Hebrews having an argument. And the one in the wrong, he goes to and says, why are you treating your fellow Hebrew this way? And the guy says, who made you ruler and judge over us? Motion pictures and books have been inspired by the life of Moses. He was saved from genocide as a baby, raised as royalty, then forced into exile for his mistakes. Years later, he returned to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt, which was followed by a life leading the lost nation in the desert. As Pastor Danny will point out in today's message, the ways God orchestrated the life of this man aren't only good for a dramatic storyline, his life demonstrates so much about God's love, compassion, and sovereignty. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of Exodus chapter 4 as he begins his message, Deliverance from Egypt. Exodus is where we are. Go to Exodus chapter 4. In the book of Exodus, we have the story of Moses. Even before he got his name, God had his hand on this child. The backdrop of Moses' life um, in Egypt is Joseph, before he died, had brought dad and all of his brothers and family down to Egypt. They multiplied in Egypt, so much so that Pharaoh a new Pharaoh that rose to power and did not know of Joseph. He became concerned because the Hebrews now are multiplying in the land of Egypt. And he's thinking, if if we go to war and uh, these Hebrews decide to go with our enemies, we'll be in real trouble. And so one of the ways they're looking to reduce the population of Hebrews is to throw every male Hebrew child into the Nile River. Now, how do you convince somebody to throw a child into the Nile River? Well, you worship the gods of the Nile. And it's an act of worship to now take the child and uh, toss them into the Nile. And it's a whole lot easier to take a Hebrew child than an Egyptian child. So they began tossing these Hebrew children into the Nile as an act of worship. I know, crazy to try to put that through your brain and stomach that, but that's what happened. But God providentially cared for Moses. His mother made him a little boat basket. She takes it down to the Nile, puts it among the reeds there along the banks of the Nile. And as he's floating there uh, on the Nile, Pharaoh's daughter just happens to come down and uh, she's going to take a bath. 
And she sees the, the little basket, and she tells one of her servant girls, go get that basket. They bring the basket uh, to the shore, and inside is little Moses. He hasn't been named yet, but he gets his name from being drawn out of the water. That's what Moses means, to draw out. Moses is crying. And Moses' older sister has been watching to see what would happen to him. And she comes running up at that moment and says to Pharaoh's daughter, Hey, you want me to go, go get one of the Hebrew uh, women to nurse this child for you? She says, That's a great idea. Go get her. And she goes and gets her mother, who is also Moses' mother, brings her back. And then Pharaoh's daughter says, You nurse this child for me and I'll pay you. Now that's, you, you just don't get a better deal than that. You nurse your own kid and now you're on the palace payroll. And she does, and then as a young lad, uh, Moses is taken back to Pharaoh's daughter. She's adopted, if you will, into the family, becomes known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, grows up in the palace, becomes a prince of Egypt. People that didn't know the story from when he was young uh, think he's an Egyptian, but he's not an Egyptian. Acts 7 tells us he became powerful in speech and in action. God has a calling on his life. Moses, knowing God has called him to be a a deliverer because his Hebrew brothers and sisters are slaves. And so he goes out and he sees one day an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And so he, he, he kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. Next day he goes out and he sees two Hebrews having an argument. And the one in the wrong he goes to and says, why are you treating your fellow Hebrew this way? And the guy says, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of doing to me what you did to the Egyptian? (gasps) Moses' mouth hangs open. He's like, ah, what happened? Somebody knows what he did. Pharaoh finds out he's going to kill Moses. Moses runs for his life, ends up on the backside of the desert for 40 years. He gets married there. Has a family there, names his first son, and in light of what's happening in his life, he names him Gershom. <laughs> Not a good choice these days because it means alien. <laughs> because I've become an alien in a foreign land. But the good side, the good side of Moses being on the backside of the desert for 40 years is over that period of time, he's humbled. Numbers 12, verse 3 tells us Moses became the most humble man on the face of of the earth. The problem is first attempt in doing the will of God and the work of God was he was educated. Acts 7 tells us he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He had the best education money could buy. He was a prince. He had position. He had status. He was powerful in speech and action, but that was his problem. He thought he could be the deliverer by his own power. Never works that way. Now that he's not only humble, he's the most humble man on the face of the earth, God comes calling again by means of a burning bush. He goes to the bush, and God speaks to him. God says, now, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to stand before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Moses gives five excuses why he's not the guy to do it. And the fifth one, the fifth one is most telling. He says, would you just send somebody else? And God gets angry. And if you've been reading with us, God gets angry after the fifth excuse. Moses finally consents, and we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 4. Moses on his way to Egypt, and if you were reading with us, you might have, you might have if you were taking notes, ask a question. What's going on here? 
This is kind of mysterious. Verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, on the way to Egypt, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. What? But Zipporah, his wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it, the foreskin of his private part. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision, something God commanded under that Old Testament economy for each father to do for every male son. Circumcise your child as a sign of the covenant God had with his people, the Israelites. Moses failed here. Despite the fact that he's the most humble man on the face of the earth, he's still a very imperfect man. And he fails in a leadership role in the family. And his wife fulfills the role that he should have fulfilled, and by doing so, saves the family some real heartache and judgment from God. And I put in my notes, I put in my notes, how many godly wives have been used to spare their family's judgment by fulfilling leadership responsibilities reserved for the husband? Got quiet on that point, didn't it? Well, you'll be happy to know I'm not going to belabor that point, but we do make it because it's in the story. And it encourages me. Because despite Moses' humility, he's still a very imperfect man. And he's a very imperfect man even at home. I'll give you one principle and then we'll move on. 1 Corinthians 7.14 In a family where you have even a Christian husband and a non-Christian wife, that Christian husband, according to 1 Corinthians 7.14, has a godly influence on the home and the family. It says, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. In other words, you are a sanctifying influence in that family, in that home. You're a believing wife and you have an unbelieving husband. You are a godly influence and a sanctifying influence in that relationship and in the family. Don't miss that. And sometimes blessing comes because of a godly spouse when there's failure in the other spouse. That's what happens here with Moses. I'm encouraged by that. So he heads down to Egypt. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? That I should obey him and let Israel go. I don't know the Lord. I won't let him go. And then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. There's another kind of mysterious verse on the surface. This is Moses and Aaron saying, hey, if we don't do what God's bidding us to do, if we don't follow him in, in him leading us out of Egypt, well, we're going to suffer his wrath. But that'll preach. He wants to lead us out of Egypt. And if we'll follow him in going out of Egypt, then we won't suffer his wrath. We'll come back to that one before we're done. But Pharaoh doesn't listen. Hardens his heart. says, I'm not going to let him go. I don't know this 
the Lord. I don't know who you're talking about, and I'm not going to let them go. Not only does Pharaoh not let the Israelites go, he goes back now, and they are slaves. And one of the things they do in Egypt as slaves is they make bricks. They make bricks out of straw. So now Pharaoh tells the, the guys, the foreman over the Israelites, now don't supply them any more straw. But tell them they got to make the same quota of bricks every day. But they got to go get their own straw. What? And life gets harder for the Israelites after God's man stands before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And now you pick it up, chapter 5, verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble upon this people. And you've not rescued your people at all. It's almost kind of humorous that God's reminding, or Moses is reminding God, you haven't done what you said you'd do. And then chapter 6. Now, when I went through chapter 6, and you pay me to study the Bible, so before I got up here to teach, I read through the account several times. Several times. And one of those times when I got to chapter 6, I actually underlined, underlined every time it says in chapter 6 where God says, I will. I will. And he says it numerous times. He says, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. I will bring you to the land I swore, the land of promise. But despite God repeatedly saying, I will, I will, I will, I will, Moses goes back, chapter 6, verse 9, reported this to the Israelites, but they didn't listen. Why? Because of their discouragement and their cruel bondage. God makes a promise. He makes promises. And then life gets harder. You know what happens with some people? They just lose faith in God. Well, God said this and God promised that. And all of a sudden life's getting harder and you're going, what, 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 what? Persevere. In faith. But even Moses, his faith is wavering. Verse 12, chapter 6, Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? In other words, this is not going to work. God says it is going to work. You just hang on. And then God begins to pour out a display of his power in the land of Egypt by way of plagues. Negative things. Plagues. Chapter 7, verse 20. First plague. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials, and he struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But... It says the magicians of Pharaoh, they did the same thing. They turned water into blood. What's going on there? It's called counterfeit signs and wonders. And because they're able to do the same thing, Pharaoh says, I'm not letting them go. No way. God says, okay, more plagues are coming. You're going to love the next one. Chapter 8, verse 6. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up, covered the land. 
But again, the magicians did the same things. Now, why would you want to repeat that? But they did it. And they made frogs come up on the land. Frogs everywhere. So Pharaoh says, no, not letting them go. Not going to work. And then God sends the third plague. Chapter 8, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff, strike the dust of the ground. Throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand uh, with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. That's a lot of gnats. And notice... Verse 18, when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Why? Satan has power, but it's limited, and there's one thing that Satan cannot do. He cannot bring life from death, which is what God did by producing the gnats. Pharaoh's magicians say to him, this is the finger of God. But he still doesn't care. He hardens his heart. He says, I'm not letting them go. I don't care. And so plague number 4, chapter 8, verse 24, dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace, into his houses, and the houses of the Egyptians, and all his officials throughout Egypt. The land was ruined by flies. You think that would work, but it doesn't. Hardens his heart again, and so you get plague number 5, chapter 9, verse 6. Next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. He still hardens his heart. This dude's, he got a thick skull, man. Hard-hearted. And so plague number six comes. Ouch. Chapter 9, verse 10. They took soot from a furnace. They stood before Pharaoh. They tossed it into the air. Festering boils broke out on men and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and all the Egyptian. Now it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Some people get all bent out of shape. At that. Listen, if you repeatedly harden your heart, then you will become calloused. And then the Lord will say, okay, you want a hard heart? I'll give you what you want. That's all it means when it says the Lord hardened his heart. You want to you resist God? You want to resist the Holy Spirit? And you keep doing that and you're persistent in that? Then you're going to end up calloused and the Lord's going to say, I'll just leave you alone. And then plague number six comes. Chapter 9, verse 23. Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky. The Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning uh, flashed to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. But Pharaoh still unyielding. And so you get plague number 8. Chapter 10, verse 13, Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt. The Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought locusts. They invaded all Egypt, settled down in every area in the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail. Every growing, everything growing in the fields, the fruit on the trees, nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Well, that doesn't soften Pharaoh's heart either, and so you get plague number 9. Exodus chapter 10, verse 22. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Every time I think about this one, my mind goes back to the darkest experience in this life I've ever had. It was in the land of Israel in Hezekiah's tunnel. 
and we're walking through Hezekiah's tunnel, and right about halfway through, I told everybody in my group, now, everybody stop, turn off your flashlights. We all turn off our flashlights. And you guys who are with me, remember how that was? Wasn't that so cool? Wouldn't have been cool, but we knew we were saved. We knew we were Christians. We knew we were going to heaven. And we knew our flashlights would come back on. <laughs> Hopefully. But man, you talk about darkness. It was a darkness you could feel. But Pharaoh still is unyielding. And so you get to chapter 11, and it opens this way. The Lord said to Moses, I'll bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he'll let you go. Verse 4, chapter 11, Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight I'll go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There'll be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. The plague on the firstborn is fascinating to me, and even more fascinating this particular study through this section of Exodus than ever before, because I saw something in a light I've never really seen it before. Because the plague on the firstborn is connected to Passover. Passover, where you were to take the Passover lamb, you were to slaughter the lamb, take the blood, apply it, uh, to your house, and then, then when the death angel comes over to kill the firstborn in every family, he would pass over you because he sees the blood of the lamb. The message is unmistakable. But all the way back in chapter 4, something I never really meditated on deeply, but I did this time. Chapter 4, verse 22, here's what God tells Moses, say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord said, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go. The firstborn son. It's not that you didn't love the rest of your family, but in this culture, the firstborn son. He gets double blessing inheritance. <laughs> he, he just, he's a special, a special one in the family. When I read that, I thought of Hebrews chapter 12. Whew, this is good stuff, man. Hebrews chapter 12, for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah. Verse 22, you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You haven't come to plague and doom and darkness and fear of God's wrath. You've come to life. And you are God's prized possession. And here's what I put in my notes. It is a collective redemption. Israel is my firstborn son. But you only become a part of it by personal application. You have to apply the blood. You have to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, have you? You won't be saved because your mom's saved. You won't be saved because your dad's saved. You won't be saved because your son is saved or your daughter is saved or your friend is saved. You won't be saved because you acknowledge God and you see His power and you see that He is the only God and you acknowledge that. Not just because you believe in Him have you 
Have you applied the blood? Have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Thanks for joining us today on The Living Word. Pastor Danny's study, Gleanings from the Old Testament, will continue next time, so be sure to tune in again. Through this study, you'll meet a variety of characters, some strong in their faith and others not, some who seem to have a massive role in society and others who only have a minor part to play. Each person and each situation have a valuable lesson for you, though, and it's worth your time and attention. You can and should learn from their triumphs as well as their failures, and you can take comfort in the one that they all served, your Creator, God Himself. You also have the privilege of seeing the future that they had yet to know. You have the rest of Scripture to dig into as well. Today, we encourage you to read again the passage that Pastor Danny taught on, or turn to another part of the Bible. You won't be disappointed, and God has plenty to tell you on every page of Scripture. It truly is the living Word. If you'd like to explore more of Pastor Danny's messages from this series or others, we encourage you to visit our website, ccfstpete.church. Just click on Sermons to be directed to our YouTube page, and we'd love for you to subscribe. When you do, you'll be notified by email every time we post a new message. That website one more time is ccfstpete.church. That's all we have time for for today. We'll continue walking through the Old Testament next time, right here on The Living Word.